This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Disruptive CEO Nation, where company founders, entrepreneurs, and cutting-edge thinkers drop in from around the globe to share startup stories, insider insights, and hard-earned success lessons. Now, here's your host, a woman who mastered business by placing heels on the ground all over the world, having worked with and coached CEOs and senior leaders from over 90 countries, and who wants you to build your best business future, Allison K. Summers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Disruptive CEO Nation. Well, I hope you have an interest in vertical farming, and I hope you want to know more about it because it is something that we're going to all have touched our lives someday, and I truly believe that. So I would love for you to meet the CEO. We're going to explore his background because it's quite diverse, but I want to jump right in to what he does with his company today. So I want to introduce you to Eddie Bedrina, who is the CEO of Eating Green Technology. Eddie, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Allison. Pleasure to be here. Tell everybody, I'm just so fascinated. Um, Tell everybody what the good things are and how you are revolutionizing the food industry. Yeah, absolutely. So Eating Green Technology is a vertical farming enclosed in a greenhouse. So think of all the great things that happen inside of these indoor farming uh, uh, platforms that we see nowadays, but with 100% sunlight complementary grow lights, but mostly sunlight. And so we are basically bringing 40 acres of farming right next to the consumer. So we put, we're placing these next to distribution centers in and around urban areas uh, and bringing the farm to people. Now, what that does is it uh, with 99% less water, 99% less land uh, and eliminating the distribution and supply chain problems we're seeing right now, we're able to provide nutritious, uh, consistent season agnostic um, leafy greens and herbs and berries and peppers uh, to consumers all at an affordable price. Right. Mm -hmm. So we really are trying to change the way that we're farming food and then change the way that we're feeding people. Well, and I think, Somebody listening might say, well, well, vertical farming is not necessarily, you know, that new. So, but you all are going about it differently and with a very strong mission, like you said, to bring the food to people. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, greenhouse farming, uh, any, any tomato that you've eaten the past 10 years has been grown in a greenhouse. That's just the way it is, right? So <laughs> greenhouse give us farming. The reality here, huh? <laughs> yes, greenhouse farming is not new at all, and the Dutch and the French have perfected it for the last 40, 50 years almost. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, you've got vertical farms, and it's you've they've made a lot of news these days, whether it's Bowery or Bright Farms or Aero Farms, and those are all indoors, and it's like bunk beds of greens, right, mm-hmm. with lights shining down on them. 
the dirty secret about those vertical farms is while they produce greens, totally clean, pest-free, pesticide-free, the reality is all of those lights cost a lot to buy and install, and they cost a lot to use and the light electricity costs are enormous, like the, to the point of data centers. So there's no way, at least for the net, for, for the foreseeable future that you're going to be able to grow those greens in an affordable manner for the vast majority of consumers. So what you end up with is very high priced, ultra premium product for the top end of consumers and for really fancy restaurants. It doesn't address the rest of the marketplace, doesn't address the normal everyday consumer uh, who's shopping at, you know, Walmart or Costco or, you know, uh, Meyer or Albertsons, any of that doesn't really address them. The greenhouses on the other hand are, are economical. um, But the reality is 40 acres of conventional farming, is equal to about five acres of greenhouse, which is equal to about one acre of ours. So when you think about the greenhouses, they are economical, but they, most of the greenhouses being built are built in 60 acre increments. There's nowhere near a city that you're going to be able to find 60 acres that's financially viable. So these greenhouses, while they're economical, they don't solve for this transportation and supply issue we're seeing now, especially post-COVID, right? Um, so we, we're changing all that by combining the all the efficiencies of greenhouse, but with the density of vertical farming, uh, we are doing something that no one else is able to do, which is provide affordable greens that are grown indoors. So let me ask this, Eddie, for Eden Green Technology, um, what's your business model? So you, you, you've got the technology figured out. You've, you've cracked the code on how to make this efficient. And, and as you said, I sit outside the city of Chicago and, and we know, even though Illinois is farmland, um, that the families that are on like the South side of Chicago or in the, in the impoverished neighborhoods don't have access to fresh fruit. They don't have access to, because they can't afford it and, and people don't take it there. So you've cracked the code, um, is, is, Eden, um, does somebody else come to you to buy it for Eden to set up? Are you yeah. also setting up your own um, vertical farms and distribution centers? Tell me what the model is. That's a great question. So our vision is to have a mesh network of these greenhouses all across the United States that are providing locally grown, hyper-fresh, hyper-local greens to distributors to grocers, and then we're actually growing for these labels and brands, right? Mm -hmm. So where a lot of our competitors and peers have their own labels, their own brands that they're sticking in store. The next time you go to to a grocery store, just look at the wall of produce. There's about 20% of it that's with its own label, right? The premium brands. The other 80% is just your commodity, it's either a private label by the distributor or it's actually the own store's private label. That's what we want to supply is those is the the labelless. We want to be ubiquitous and unsexy infrastructure <laughs> for greens, right? We're we're going at it the exact opposite way, right? But 
we're doing that one because our greenhouses are the unit level economics are positive, very positive, so profitable that we're able to address those commodities instead of having to go from really high end and work our way down. Um, so that's how we're going about it. And our, our customer, the end consumer is our customer, mm-hmm. but really our customer uh, is those labels, those white private labels and those distributors uh, that provide the private labels to the retailers and grocers. Well, and Eddie, you know, separate from that food insecurity in so many parts of the world is such a huge problem. And, um, and I was reading that in um, Eden technology and your Eden green technology that you can have a harvest cycle of 28 days. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not only a volume thing, but it, it's it's something that can help people vast and wide. Right. I I have to go back because um, part of the reason I wanted to speak with you today is you have such an engaging background. And we look at some of the places that you've been and you've been a company founder before. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading your background, it doesn't scream that you were going to be destined to lead a vertical farm company. So I know yeah. that you were the co-founder of a company called BuzzShift. So give us a little bit about your background and and also that disruptive mindset that you have that you're bringing to this industry. Yeah, it is a very uh, circuitous route to ag tech. I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, my original background in college, I went to Texas A&M. Uh, and got a liberal arts degree. I got a degree in psychology, a bachelor's of science in psychology. And I would say that really gave me the foundation for cultivating deep relationships. And my personal mission, uh, the, my whole sort of reason for being is to grow and scale uh, organizations mm-hmm. um, that have a huge cultural impact. And then to do that through cultivating deep relationships. So everything that I do, the boards that I sit on, the company that I run, everything is about growing and scaling organizations that have immense cultural impacts. But then I do it through deep personal relationships. And so that sort of liberal arts psychology mindset helped me really uh, hone my relational skills, my communication skills, my interpersonal relationship skills. Uh, and then just through uh, some some great opportunities, I got ch- a chance to work for President Bush Sr. in his personal office in Houston, went to his grad school, and then uh, went and worked in D.C. for six years, Washington, D.C. for six years. And so that honed sort of my strategic mindset, my growth mindset to see the kind of the global implications uh, for companies and organizations to really make an impact. So those are sort of the two, you know, A&M, Bush School, and then the psychology degree that really started to bubble up my passions and my gifts for scaling organizations, cultural impact, and then uh, deep personal relationships. Well, and BuzzShift, the company that you co-founded, that was um, more in the marketing segment, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was marketing, but it was at the cutting edge of digital marketing. So when we started it back in 2010, if we, you know, your audience can think that far back, 
Twitter had just started, not what, 2007. Facebook was just Facebook. It didn't hardly have any ad. I don't think it had any ads at all. Google was oh, the way to go. Those were the go. days, right? Those right? were the days when social media didn't those, have ads. Right. Uh, Google was all SEO based, right? With some AdWords. Google AdWords was very, still very small thing. So we were on the cutting edge of being able to market instead of a one-to-one market marketing a one-to-many marketing through digital. And so that was the the impetus for me, my business partner to start that is we just saw a need in the marketplace for a natively digital uh, agency that was on the cutting edge of marketing and marketing technology um, to, to be able to, to expand the reach of brands and organizations. So that's why I started that. We bootstrapped it did it from scratch, no loans, no lines of credit, seriously cash flow bootstrapped it, uh, brought it to a place six, six years later that we were able to sell it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, uh, we sold it in 2016. We bought it back 11 months later, uh, for, for <laughs> pennies on the dollar. Good. Always good to sell high and buy low. Uh, and then we continued to run it. I was going to and say, was, somebody didn't know what to do with what they bought, huh? Yeah. Let's just say the, the visions weren't aligned once the contracts were closed, which is fine. I mean, things happen. Fortunately, we were able to, to, to uh, reacquire it. Uh, but it was during that, after that reacquisition that I really felt like, okay, I was, uh, I guess I was 42 at the time. Um, and I just felt like, man, there was something more that I could be doing in the second half of my career, right? Um, and through just a long process, long drawn out process, uh, working with friends and family and working with my counselor and my leadership group that I was a part of, uh, three things really came to mind and they coalesced over the course of probably a year. And the first was I wanted to run a hardware software company. I had been there, done that, gotten the M&A t-shirt with professional services, right? Yeah. So I wanted to do something different. The second is I wanted to have an exponential impact uh, of on my level of effort. So uh, for every one unit of effort that I put in, whether that's time or you know, a function of time, I wanted to see a 10 to 20x return on culture and society around me. And then the last thing that was important to me is I wanted to run what's called a redemptive organization and a redemptive organization, uh, which is uh, espoused by a group up in New York city called Praxis labs, but a redemptive organization is one where um, leaders eat last. So they're sacrificial in nature. Uh, It's where employees are not just treated fairly, but they're treated generously. Mm -hmm. And it's where culture and society around that company uh, are not just improved, not just advanced, but they're renewed and restored because that company exists, right? Uh, it's very different from even an exploitative or, or organization, especially, but it's even different from an ethical organization because uh, ethical organizations, while the leaders eat alongside their employees, employees are treated fairly with good benefits and, um, and society is advanced because of that ethical, uh, ethical nature, ethical companies, uh, just the way that they're structured, depending on the leadership will slide back into exploitative aspects. It's only when you can build a company with a redemptive framework that you 
ensure and constrain leaders to be redemptive because the company is redemptive by nature. I really thank thank you for explaining that. Um, I think that is a wonderful insight. And it leads me to my next question. So you went through this exploration and you you came Mm -hmm. up with this vision of what you want to do in the second half of your career. You've been with um, Eden Green Technology since 2019. Give us a little bit about examples of, of what you did and what your approach is to help it do the scaling that it's doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, one of the things, um, and, and it may be useful for your audience to understand, like I identified those three things, mm-hmm. but I, re- I really had to do sort of a three-step process. Um, one is I had to clarify and clearly articulate those three things for other people, but more importantly for myself. I think a lot of uh, people who want to be in leadership, who want to be CEOs, cannot clearly communicate to themselves and be honest with themselves about what they want. So I had to clearly communicate and articulate to myself what I wanted in those Mm -hmm. three things. The second thing I had to do was I had to pass it through a filter of family and colleagues. I had to have a peer group, a family, uh, friends that I was open and honest enough with to put those three things out there and for them to just through iterations say, Hey, that's a good idea. Run with that. Or no, that is not coming from a healthy place for you. You need to rethink this piece. And so it was over the course of the year that I bounced different ideas off of them. And a lot of my good friends would just say, Eddie, I love that idea, but I don't think one, that's your strength or two, that that's going to play into some of your personal weaknesses or your, you know, uh, is not playing to your strengths as a leader. So maybe adjust that. So I had to run it through that filter of family of friends to make sure it was healthy. Um, mm-hmm. I try to stray away from right and wrong and I more gear it towards healthy and unhealthy, right? Is it healthy for me? Is it healthy for the business? Is it healthy for my family? Is it healthy for my relationships or is it unhealthy? Right. Um, because health differs for everyone, right. And there's states of health. So once I ran it through that filter, the last thing I had to do was I had to let go of it. So I, I socialized it. I socialized those three ideas that I knew were coming from a healthy place. But then I just was like, man, when I try to force things, bad things happen, right? So I had to, I had to socialize it with friends and colleagues and just wait for it to come back. And I'm a man of faith. And so the way I characterize that is I had to give it back to God. And sure enough, when I let go of it and I got in what's known as a neutral posture where I was good either way, if I stayed at bus shift or I moved to something else, I was good either way. I was in neutral, right? As soon as I got into that neutral posture, that's when the opportunity for eating green came up and all the puzzle pieces were in place. And it was the easiest hard decision I ever made to take a step back from bus shift and to take a step towards Eden green because those three things that I had identified had checked those, that three-step process. So then to your question of, okay, what are we doing at, at Eden Green that's so different? How am I helping it scale? Well, the puzzle pieces were there. It's a patented technology. Literally no one else in the United States and around the world can do what we're doing. 
It's not pro- just proprietary, like it is patent approved here in the States for the next 20 years. I had to build a business model around that, a business model that, um, in my view, could at the same time um, be profitable, but mm-hmm. also be redemptive to commun- to society around it. And the third is I had to get the right team in the right place, in the, the right seats. There's this, this thought of you get people on the right bus, in the right seats, and it'll go in the right direction, right? And so there's some people who are on the bus, they're just in the wrong seats. Then there are some people who just weren't going in the direction that we needed to and didn't need to be on that bus anymore. And that took time. Right. Uh, but what you end up with is when people have a clear direction, a clear line of sight and focus, and those people are on the right in the right seats, mm-hmm. man, it's going. And then you just have to be patient. Then so, you just have to be patient. So is um, tell me where Eden Green is right now in terms of its its footprint um, in North America. So uh, we have our 40,000 square foot pilot facility uh, just south of Fort Worth. Uh, and that's actually producing greens right now. It used to be an R&D facility, but there's so much demand for our greens. We had to turn the vast majority of it into a production facility. So we're producing out of that for one grower. Uh, we're building a new facility next door, which is t- almost twice as large. Um, and that is almost all pre-sold. So if you can imagine the, the 17 harvests a year going out of that are almost all pre-sold. Uh, and that's really exciting. It's proving out the commercial proof of concept. Mm-hmm. And we're actually going out uh, for, a, for a raise now. We've done, done a very atypical uh, fund, funding capital raise methodology um, uh, even before I was there. It's, it's been mostly friends and family and then, uh, and then a family office here in Texas that's funded it. But now we're going out to institutional funding. Uh, and and we're, we'll, we'll raise in excess of $100 million in the next three to six months. Uh, and we'll start to plant these uh, greenhouse modules uh, in uh, a couple of key locations. Actually, one probably up in that area where you are in the uh-huh. Chicago area, uh, probably Atlanta, and then up in the tri-state area, New, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Well, that's really exciting. And, and again, you joined in, in 2019 and, um, and I'm sure had to, as you said, get, get the business plan, get everything in place, but to be at a place now where you're, you're ready to, it sounds like you're ready to really rock and roll once you. Yeah. We're in the growth. We're, we're past prototype. We're past early stage. We're in growth mode. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, where do you see, where do you see it going in, in the next three to five years? So the vision in five years is to have 40 greenhouses all over the United States. It's the basis for our mesh network of greenhouses. In about seven to eight years, we'll have 80 greenhouses. 80 greenhouses will produce a revenue of just under half a billion dollars uh, of just lettuce. And just think about this. The lettuce industry right now is an eight billion dollar industry just lettuce not not leafy greens not spinach kale arugula simply lettuce in the united states is an eight billion dollar industry um and the leafy green industry which is a 20 billion dollar industry is growing 15 percent year over year wow so we are and that's the i mean the investors are just saying wait a second so you're not even (laughs) 
you're not even going into new markets. You're literally replacing current market share coming from all the way over in California and Arizona. Uh, that's taking days and weeks to get to shelves only to go bad in your refrigerator after three days. Right. And we're bringing those farms all the way next to distribution centers. We could have greens in your refrigerator from harvest to fridge in 72 hours and it lasts for weeks. Well, that's so, remarkable. And I think, I was just going to say, I think one of the things the pandemic has taught us is how, how fragile the supply chain is absolutely. for everything, mm-hmm. for everything. And now, um, yeah. So it's the idea that it could be grown that way. And as you said, 72 hours from harvest to my refrigerator and yeah. I'm not, paying for high dollar organic products um, is amazing. It it really is. And, you know, our, our goal is people think about that, like, wow, I could get fresh, fresh food. The key is it's affordable. It's Mm. affordable for everyone. Our unit level economics are so good that we're able to do it and compete with conventional greens. Like we're literally competing with conventional greens at this point. No one else can do that in our space. They just can't afford it. The, it, the, the, it doesn't pencil, right? The numbers just don't pencil. So when you start to be able to provide and raise the bar exponentially on the quality of greens that everyone can afford and that it's consistent 12 months out of the year, you, you all of a sudden start to unlock value because of that shrinking supply chain from, you know, right now it'll, it, it's, uh, it used to be about five to 10 cents a unit to ship from California to or Arizona to, to where I am. Now it's like 40 to 50 cents. Mm. And when you're talking about a unit, that's only $3, 310, that's a huge, huge margin buster. Well, if you can take it that way and you eliminate all those shipping costs, you start to unlock value, not just for the retailer, but also for the consumer. So in due time, the consumer is going to be saying, wait a second, I'm paying the same price as I'm paying for this other stuff, paying the same price for stuff that tastes better, is safer, is going to last longer in my fridge. Well, I'm going to expect that of everything, right? It's just our whole, like our whole Amazon Prime deal, right? If you live in a major city, you expect free shipping and it, and it better be there the next day. Oh, right? no, Eddie, I'm awful. I'm in, I, again, I'm outside of Chicago. There's an Amazon major distribution center down the street. It's like a beehive if you go past yeah. it at seven in the morning and all those trucks come yep. flying but out. Amazon has raised our expectation on shipping costs yeah. and raised our expectations on shipping time. We're doing the same thing for produce. We're raising those expectations and it's for the consumer. So right? Eddie, I have a question for you. Is Are you concerned or what's the kind of, I don't want to say guarantee, because you're building this wonderful model with these, with these values and with this mission. Um, are you worried? This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.